0: Wildwood Community Church exists to glorify God by connecting people to Christ, His worship, His community, and His mission. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. Well, good morning, Wildwood. Hey, if you were with us last week, you know that we began a short two-part series called Generous Living, where we began talking about what it looks like for us to live a life of generosity. And last week we saw that that begins with connecting with the God of the universe and laying our lives before Him so that He might do a revolution from the inside out, that He might do the impossible through us as we are connected to Him on the basis of His good work and as we have the opportunity to live out of generosity that otherwise we could not muster on our own. So we talked about that last week in Jesus' interaction with the rich young ruler and we're going to continue this week by talking a little more of the particulars of what it looks like for us to live out a life of generosity by looking at 1 Timothy chapter 6 verses 17 through 19. But before we look at those verses together, I want to just have a hypothetical situation to float with you all. And I want you to imagine just for a moment that we were going to take a trip to Disney World. Now, when I say that, we're going to take a trip to Disney World, some of you are excited and others of you just rolled your eyes. It's a big distance between me and you, but I can still see that. Um, So I know it produced a different reaction, but it's a hypothetical, so go with me. Imagine that we are going to take a trip to Disney World. Now, before that trip to Disney World, especially if you've never taken that trip before, you probably would want some kind of advice about the trip. You'd want to get some kind of a travel guide. So let's say you go online to Amazon, and from a reputable travel provider, you order a travel guide for a trip to Disney World. Now, when that travel guide comes in two days, you tear it open and you begin to read. And what you find is a very interesting travel guide. At the beginning of the book, chapter 1 deals with the costs of going to Disney World and how much it will cost to just get there. That's chapter 1. Chapter 2 talks about how you can fly there. It talks about all the major airports you can connect to Orlando through. And and chapter 3 deals with how you can get there via train. And it talks about the Amtrak routes and where you need to go in order to get there. Uh, Chapter 4 talks about the different ways you can drive to Disney World and the major interstates and the roads that you would take to get there. And then the concluding chapter of the book compares each of those different ways of getting to Disney World so that you understand how long each one will take in comparison and how much each will cost. Now, let me ask you, if that was the travel guide that you purchased for your trip to Disney World, how many stars would you give that travel guide in your review on Amazon? The reality is you probably would not give it very many stars. Now, why is that? Because All that travel guide did was tell you how to get there. It told you nothing about what to do once you had arrived. Now, I say that because in our world and in our life, um, as it relates to the topic of finances, we live in a world that is constantly, constantly, constantly giving us messages about how to get rich. You know, if we were to go to the bookstore, we would see book after book that would provide strategy after strategy about how to get rich. If we were to look at our commercials that we watch, many of them would tell us a path on how we can get rich quick, especially if you watch daytime television. I spent part of this last week sick. If you watch some daytime television, the commercials during daytime television, many of them offer ways for you to get rich quick quick. We live in a world that is fascinated with getting rich quick. And and honestly, even when I look at the advice that happens inside of many churches, the advice that is given oftentimes deals with how do we get rich? But there is very little conversation about what to do once we get there. Even further, when we think about the world in which we live, the advice that we give on what to do once we get there That advice is basically just to consume a lot of stuff. I mean, this afternoon at 5.30, we're all going to sit down and we're all going to watch the Super Bowl, or many of you are. And that Super Bowl game is going to take about 18 hours. Why is it going to take that long? Because there's so many commercials that are going to dot that telecast. And each commercial is going to tell you how it feels to be rich and what we should do when we get there how to know that we have arrived. But my question for us is, as followers of Jesus Christ, do we play by the same rules? As those who know the God of the universe, does the Scripture tell us anything about how we are to behave and to operate if we have more than we need? And the answer to that is an emphatic yes. God does not come to us and leave us empty-handed with how we handle the Things that he has entrusted to us in this life. If you find yourself with more than you need, there is instruction in God's word, not just of how do we get there, but what do we do when we've arrived. We're going to look at what it means to be rich and how to be good at being rich, specifically in some instruction given to us inside of God's Word in First Timothy chapter six, verses seventeen through nineteen. So if you've got a Bible, open up to First Timothy six. 17 through 19. We're going to look at a number of passages today, but our base text will be right there in the book of 1 Timothy and in chapter 6. The Apostle Paul writes this letter to his protege Timothy and he gives him some instruction about how Timothy is supposed to appoint elders inside of these churches where movements for Christ have started and what they should teach. And part of what leaders of churches are to teach is things about. How to behave if we find ourselves with more than we need. How to behave if we find ourselves to be of those who are rich in this present age. Paul writes and says this. He says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and to be ready to share Thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Now in these three verses, we see Paul instructing Timothy and preserve for us today some things about how to live if we find ourselves with more material possessions than we need. I think this is instruction that is for us today, friends. We're going to see three things as we look at this. The first thing we see is that this is special instruction to those who are rich in this present age. This section right here, Timothy, is to provide some special biblical instructions, a special charge To those who find themselves to be rich in this present age. Now, we might hear that and think, well, that's kind of odd. We're not supposed to be a respecter of persons inside the church. We're not supposed to just focus on one subset, whether they be poor or rich, but but all people. And the reality is that's true. We are to teach all people and instruct all people to follow Christ. But Paul knew that Timothy needed to provide some special instruction to those who found themselves rich in this present age. There are some specific challenges that face those who find themselves with more than they need. And so Paul writes Timothy some specific instructions, and it's preserved for us here. Now, when we look at this and we see this, uh, we don't think of ourselves as rich, do we? We talked about this a little bit last week, but we don't think of ourselves as those who are rich in this present age. And why is that? Because rich and poor, again, are relative terms. We find ourselves as average, and anybody who has more possessions than we do, they are the ones who are rich. And anyone who has less than us, they are the ones who are poor. That's generally the way that we think about it. It's a relative term. Because of that, very few people actually find themselves or would term themselves as rich in this present age. As a matter of fact, we even can find some data that would help confirm that as we look around our country. What would it take for you to be one of the top 1% of wage earners in the United States? Think about that. What would it take for you to be in the top 1% of wage earners in the United States? The reality is it would take an annual income of about $500,000 for you to be in the top 1% of wage earners in the United States. That's the statistic that I saw just this last week. Now because of that, so many of us in this room don't consider ourselves rich because we know somebody richer than us. And even those in this room who maybe make an income that rich, they know somebody who's even richer than that. So again, it's a challenge for us to think of ourselves as people who are rich in this present age. But let me just challenge that perspective just a little bit. Let me challenge it by saying this. Let's compare ourselves not to each other in this room, and let's compare ourselves not just to those in this country, but let's compare ourselves to all of those who are living on the earth at this point in time. What would it take, let me ask you, what would it take for you to be in the top 1% of wage earners in the world today? what would it take? Now, that's a number that is challenging to put together because statistics like this are hard to find. And I, I saw a wide range, but let me give you the most generous estimation, the, the, the highest level to be in the top 1% that I saw. You would have to make $37,000 annually per person that is, you're responsible for in your household in order to be in the top 1% annually. That means if you're single, if you're living alone, you would need to make $37,000 a year to be in the top 1% of wage earners in the world. If you're married with no kids, whether empty nest or not having children yet, you would need to make $74,000 to be in the top 1% of wage earners in the world. Friends, we are those who are rich in this present age. Now, you might say, well, I don't fit that criteria. Yeah, but think about how much closer you are to that level Than you are to the average of most people in the world. That's the top 1%. 99% of those living on the earth today make less than $37,000 per person. I know some of you are starting to do the math. You mean you you include benefits and 401k contribution? Don't don't even go there, right? Let's Let's just pause for a moment and realize that we are those who are rich in this present age. Lest we think that this passage is for someone else. I believe this passage is for us. It's impossible to stand up in front of a congregation in the United States of America, in Norman, Oklahoma, and and not think that this passage applies to us. This is a passage of particular interest to those who are rich in this present age. Well, what are those who are rich in this present age? What's the challenge? What's the charge? Verse 17 lets us know. Basically, this is the summary principle. The rich in this present age are not to trust in riches but to trust in the God who richly provides. Those who are rich in this present age, we're not to trust in riches, but we're to trust in the God who richly provides. Again, if we are people who are rich in this present age, there are some particular challenges that we have related to uh, possessions. One of the challenges that we have is that we have this temptation to become haughty says, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, not to puff themselves up with an inflated view of themselves, not to be conceited in any way. You know, one of the things that happens with possessions is we begin to uh, make a valuation of those around us, people that have a lot of money, who have a lot of things. We, we just value them in our, our culture, in our world. Many times we can look down on someone because they are in poverty and their their circumstance and we can begin to think, well, they must have got there because they made terrible decisions. Because I got where I got because I've made great decisions and I've worked hard. And it's possible for us to begin to have a haughty attitude towards others based on the possessions that we have. This is a, a rich person problem. We're challenged to not be haughty to not puff up. Now, I want to just make one little statement about this before we move on. What is something worth? What is something worth? Something is worth what someone else will pay for it, isn't it? That's what it's worth. I mean, I might think that my Pete Rose rookie card is worth $10,000. But if I can't get anybody to pay me $10,000 for that card, it's not worth it, is it? And you know what? I found out in life, if you take that card and you put it on the spokes of your bicycle wheels, it gets to be worth less as I kept that card from my youth. Friends, here's the point. What is a person worth? They're worth what someone would pay for them. The Son of God of infinite value gave His life, As a sacrifice for the sins, not only of you, but of every person in the world. That's how much Jesus thinks they're worth. And if we are valued at the same level, we should not be haughty as it comes to our resources. We should realize the value that God has placed around us. We're not to be haughty. He goes on and not just says that we're not to be haughty, but it says that we're not to trust in riches. He says, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. Now, are riches of this world, are they uncertain? Yes. I could take that microphone that Jeff had earlier and we could pass it around the room and everybody could give a story. If you've lived any part of life, whether you're a middle school student or a high school student or a college student or you're further on than that, you could provide some story or many stories about the uncertainty of riches. When you put money into an investment that didn't provide the return that it promised. We know that with stocks, right? But some of you are like, well, I don't have stocks. Well, let me just ask you this. Have you ever bought something that you thought was going to promise happiness, but the happiness that you got in return from that promise was less than you hoped for or ran out at some time? You know, I'll give you an example from my life. You know, there was a time in my life that I thought that happiness was found with a Subaru Forester. I thought if I just got the Subaru Forester that I would be happy. I would never need another car again. It would be the best thing ever, and it would provide for all of my needs. I I had a hope in a vehicle. Some of you have been there. Maybe it was a house. Maybe it was a vehicle. Maybe it was a a trip or whatever, but you had this, this hope in this thing, and then you get it, and what happens? Eventually, the transmission goes out on it. Eventually, it breaks down. Eventually, it's not even a part of your life anymore. There's an uncertainty in riches, and we can provide example after example after example of the uncertainty of riches. We're not to take our hope in life and place it in something so uncertain, but instead we're to take our hope in life and place it on the one who is absolutely certain to place our hope on the one who is worthy of our hope, who is worthy of our trust. And that is to place it on God. Not to put our trust in riches, but, put a tr- to, but to put our trust in the God who richly supplies. Now, when I, when I say that, We ought to begin to wonder, okay, so what does that look like, though? I mean, if I'm really to trust in the God who richly supplies and not to trust in riches, does this mean that I don't own anything? Does this mean that I don't have a house? Does this mean that I don't have insurance? Does this mean that I don't save any money? I mean, how do I make sense of all of that in light of the life that we we live? And really, in light of even the rest of Scripture. I mean, the Proverbs talk about saving and providing for family and those kinds of things. So how do I begin to understand what it looks like as it relates to our possessions as rich people, for us to trust in the God who richly supplies and not to trust in riches. Well, thankfully, the passage continues, and it gives us a number of examples of what it looks like for us to trust in the God who richly supplies. Well, what does that look like? Well, we see this picture laid out for us in the last part of verse 17, And then verse 18 and 19 of 1 Timothy 6. He begins in verse 17 and he says this. He says, We're not to set our hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So the first thing that we see of what it looks like for us to trust in the God who richly supplies is that we're going to enjoy God's gifts. Somebody who is trusting in God is enjoying the things He's given. And this begins, friends, with an understanding that God owns everything. God owns it all. Psalm 24 verse 1 talks about the world is God's and everything in it. Psalm chapter 50 verses 10 and 11, it talks about how the cattle on a thousand hills are God's. God owns it all. We live inside of His world. And if God owns it all, if we live inside of His world, then here's what that means. That means that everything that you think you have isn't yours. It's on loan to you from God. We're merely a steward over it for a season. And so anything we have is there because God has given it to us. And if we understand that God has given us His things to steward for a season, then we ought to be able to enjoy the things that God gives. Really, I mean, it it says that God has given us these things to enjoy. This echoes what we see in the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 3, verses 11 to 15, where it talks about how there is an enjoyment in this life in using the things that God has provided. That means that if you are someone who has more than you need, we, we shouldn't apologize if we sit down to have a good meal. We should be thankful that God has given us food to eat. If we have a house to live in, we should not make apology for that, but we should enjoy the house that God has provided. If we had a vehicle to drive here today, we are thankful for the vehicle that God has provided and the transportation to get here. If we have a job, if we have opportunities, we're, we're thankful for the things that God has provided for us. It's one of the things that happens when we are living out our lives dependent upon God. We realize that it's all His and that we're stewarding His resources. But friends, one of the things that also happens as we realize that, enjoying God's gifts, is we enjoy giving. We enjoy giving. You know, God has allowed us the opportunity to be like him. He is a giver and not a taker. And so he has made it possible for us to be generous and to give the things that he has entrusted to us. Everything that we receive into our hand is not meant for us. It's an opportunity for us to share that. whether that's the, the money that we have been given, whether it's the house that we live in, the cars that we drive, we have an opportunity to be a giver. In Second Corinthians chapter nine and verse seven it says, "Each one must give as he has decided in his own heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. It is possible, friends, for us to be cheerful givers. Part of enjoying life is giving seeing the resources God has given to us and extending those in ministry to others. One of the things that we, we see about those who are trusting in God and not riches is that we enjoy God's gifts. second thing that we see, though, is this. We do good. Those who are trusting in God and not riches do good with the riches that they have. We invest those things in a number of the opportunities that God has laid before us. We don't just hang on to it and and count it, but we are able to deploy it in many good purposes in life. Well, what are some of those things that we would give to? A number of them are mentioned even here in the book of 1 Timothy, but also in the rest of the New Testament and the teaching of Christ we see one of the things that we give to is we provide for our own family. One of the ways that we do good is by providing for our own family with the resources that God has given to us. First Timothy chapter 5 and verse 8 lets us know, if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. One of the ways in which we do good is we take the resources God has entrusted to us and we provide for those around us. Now, if this... If you're married, this means certainly that you're helping to provide for your spouse. If you have children who are living in your home, it means that you're helping to provide for your children with the resources that God has entrusted to you. But it also means even beyond that. If you have aging parents or parents who are in need, as children, we are, have a responsibility before God to in- invest the resources that God has entrusted to us to do good by helping to provide for their need for siblings as well, those kinds of things. We are to provide for our own family. It's, it's part of what it means for us to do good as we rest in the God who supplies and not just in our riches. A second thing that happens though is we go beyond just providing for our family. I mean, many of us provide for our family, but we're called to do more than that. We're called also to help provide for widows and orphans. We see this in 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 3, it says, honor widows who are truly widows, and then he gives instruction that follows that. James chapter 1 and verse 27 says that pure and undefiled religion is that we help widows and orphans in their distress. The idea, friends, is that we help those who cannot help themselves. If there are those in our midst who have no means to provide for themselves, we as the body of Christ come around them and help provide for their needs in their time. of Great need. There are those even within our body that we have the privilege of coming alongside and helping in a season or a time and a place when they cannot help themselves. They might be young and vulnerable. I know many in the body here have been a part of foster care. I think it's a part of this. I've adopted those internationally and domestically. It's It's a part of this, providing for orphans in their time of need but it's also something that we do as we find those who are older in our midst that that are, are short on what they need. We're able to come alongside them and provide. Sometimes it's companionship, other times it's finances and needs, but we're able to give to do good by helping to provide for widows and orphans. Another thing that we have the opportunity to be a part of is providing needs for other believers. In Acts chapter 4, verses 34 and 35, the Then the need base is expanded beyond just widows and orphans, but any believer who had a need. Their first church in Jerusalem, as they gathered, as someone had a need, another believer would step up and meet it so that nobody had this need, but they were able to meet those needs together. Friends, one of the great joys we have as a body of Christ is to be able to meet needs in our midst. Some of the most exciting dollars that Kimberly and I have been able to spend in the last several years have been to help somebody else in a time of need. And I know so many of you excel in this category. We don't have to wait for a program, but you find a need around you. You're able to step in and help meet that need if God has made it possible for you to do so. It's a blessing. It's part of what it looks like for us to to do good. With the riches that God has entrusted to us, we can provide for the needs of other believers. We also can provide for the needs simply of, of the poor in general. Not that we would eliminate poverty, but as we, as followers of Christ, come in contact with those in our community that have needs, we're able to step out and meet them. Luke chapter 10, verses 30 through 37 is the story of the Good Samaritan, where the point of that story is who is our neighbor? The answer is whoever. Is our neighbor whoever we come in contact with? The Samaritan took care of somebody very outside the box for him, and that is the pattern that is handed on to the church that we would care for all people because they are people of infinite value. As a church, we have the opportunity to be a part of this in many ways. This coming Friday, as the meal is shared, provided by Wildwood over at Food and Shelter for Friends, we're living into this. As we hosted Mission Norman at Christmas time, we're living into that. Reality, but we have the opportunity to, to reach out and to use our, our funds to help the poor. That is something we do as a church, but also it's something for you as an individual, follower of Christ. What does it look like for you to reach out to the needs of the poor around you to share what God has blessed you with? It's part of what it means to do good at being rich. The next thing, this is my favorite. We can do good for the leaders of the church. My personal favorite. Um, 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 17 made that clear. It said, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. The idea is that it's appropriate for the body of Christ to come together and take a collection to be able to provide for the material needs of those who are the pastoral team who are on staff, so that we are freed up and have extra time to be able to to pour out in care, and in leadership, and in study, and in teaching, and in prayer. Friends, I don't take that for granted. It's an incredible gift that you extend to, to me and to our team to be able to invest in those areas. And it comes from being doing good, as it talks about here in 1 Timothy, as we are able to contribute towards the needs of leaders of the church as they provide ministry in our midst. Also, we see that we can give to places of worship. Now, I I'll go all the way back to the Old Testament for this one in First Chronicles 29, and some of you are going, why are you turning to the Old Testament to describe this? And the reality is that the church in the New Testament existed before there were any church buildings. And so there, there were, the church just gathered in the synagogue or in the temple courts to worship in the early days. Um, but in the Old Testament time, it was appropriate for the believers to gather resources in First Chronicles 29 for the construction of the temple, for instance. And I think about the collections that have been given by Wildwood to help provide for the infrastructure of ministry in this town, and so many of you have sacrificed, whether it was back in... 1985 when Wildwood moved into this building. Some of you have contributed faithfully all the way back to then. Others have contributed since 2002 when we built this room and the gathering hall next to it. And others were part of the giving program from 2008 to 2011 as we built the children's building. And it's appropriate for us to give to programs like that because they provide opportunity for worship and for ministry. It's part of doing good as we contribute the riches that God has given us towards the purposes that Christ is calling us to. And lastly, something we've spent some time on the last couple of months, talking about giving and, and partnering, doing good with missionary partnerships around the world. Romans 15, 22 through 29, among other places, highlights this very idea. We're able to contribute funds and partner with believers sharing Christ around the world. Friends, there are a number of different ways that we can partner in doing good. And I want to just say that as you contribute every week, we take an offering every week here at Wildwood. When you contribute to that offering every week, it's an opportunity for us, not just as individuals, but for us collectively to take up funds and contribute them towards these causes. We have the opportunity to do good with the riches that God has entrusted to us. But we're not just called to do good, we're called to be generous. Now again, what does it mean to be generous? That, that term generous is, is, a, is a pesky one, right? It's like rich, it's a, it's a moving target. If I were to ask you, are you rich? Most of us would say no. If I ask you, are you generous? Most of us would say yes. What does it mean to be generous? Well, one of the things that we are troubled with with generosity is it seems to be somewhat of a, of a moving target. And sometimes we want to nail it down to a number. Tell me the number of what it means to be generous and I'll give it. And we sometimes want to look back to the Old Testament to the idea of the tithe, the giving of 10%. We, we, we saw that in Leviticus 27, 30 through 33, as well as a couple of the places in the Old Testament where a tenth was given of everything. And sometimes you might have even heard this taught before that a tenth is what God desires, almost like a God tax. If we give a tenth to the church, and then the rest is ours to do with as, as God intends. But you know what? The, the reality is the idea of the tithe is not taught again in the New Testament. As a matter of fact, the, the standard of, of giving is not mentioned in the New Testament as a tithe. Instead, we're given a new model. We're given a new picture. You know what that model is? That model is the person of Jesus Christ. That's the new model for followers of Christ. We, we see this in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, and verse 9, says this. It says, For you know that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. What is the new standard? The new standard for giving is the example of Christ. Let me ask you, did Jesus give 10%? He gave way more than that. He gave it all. And as we gather today and we reflect on the generosity that God is calling us to, He's calling us to an overall stewardship to all that He has entrusted to us. And generosity is something that will move and, and shift from season to season in your life. 10% may be a great starting point for many of us. If you think of how much you're giving and contributing, 10% may be a great starting point, but it's not a stopping point. Those who God has entrusted more than we need, we have a, an opportunity to trust Him on what that level of generosity is from, from season to season in our lives. When was the last time you asked God, God, what does it look like for me to be generous in this season of my life? How would you have me adjust my plan? It's also proportional. Mark chapter 12, 41 through 44, the widow places the coin inside the container and, and Jesus says she has given more than all else. So this is what that that lets me know. It lets me know that God is not as concerned with the dollar amount that you give, but He's concerned with your heart as you give it. All of us, this applies to. What What would God have you do as you're generous before Him? That's interesting. He goes on and says, not only are we to be generous, but also we're to be prepared to share a couple of things we won't get too in, in depth on in our time, but it says in, in verse eight, 18 and 19, it says that we are to be generous and ready to share. This means that our giving is intentional, it's not accidental. In 2 Corinthians 9 7, it talked about setting aside what we intended to give in our heart. We, we make a decision, a conscious decision. It ought to be a part of our budgeting conversation. What will we give? Not just what's left over, not just what I find in my pocket on Sunday morning, but what have I intended to give? And not only that it's intentional, but that it's in rhythm. 1 Corinthians 16.2 talks about setting aside funds on the first day of the week and giving them to the ministry that God has called. Friends, as we set aside this amount that we would do on a regular basis to, to give to the things that God is calling us to give to, we're to be prepared to share. And lastly, doing good means that we have an eternal perspective. We have an eternal perspective. Verse 19 makes it clear. He says, Thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Here's the principle. We don't have time to get in depth with this idea here today, but here's the general idea. The general idea is that it is always worth it for us to invest and God's priorities. It's always worth it for us to give because when we have an eternal perspective, we realize that God is able to do more through what we give than what we keep. When John Rockefeller died, somebody came to his accountant and said, how much did Rockefeller leave behind? You know what the answer was? All of it. All of it. He left all of it behind. And that's true for all of us. All of us will leave all of our earthly possessions behind. And yet, when we invest in what God is doing with an eternal perspective, we can see that it is always worth it because God is able to do more through that ministry than we are able to do as we hang on to it. And we get to fellowship with Him as He uses that gift to lead someone to Christ, to encourage a brother or sister in need, and provide for His work in the world. Friends, God wants something for us, not from us, when it comes to the topic of giving. And he invites us to be a part. Now, this is a hard thing. It's a hard thing, isn't it? But what did we see last week? We saw that God can do impossible things through us. When we trust him, his spirit washes through us and changes us so that we might do the impossible. Jesus says, with man it is impossible, but not with God. Nothing is impossible with God. So let's trust him to produce his generosity in our lives. Let me pray, as, and then we'll close in the song. Father, thank you for the opportunity to, to trust you today. We thank you for your word and being challenged by it with this hard thing. But Father, thank you that your spirit makes it possible for us to do what is impossible on our own. It makes it possible for us to lay up an eternal reward, to lay hold of true life as we follow you. Father, I pray that you would help us to do good with the riches that you've entrusted to us as we trust you with all that we have, leaning into all that you are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.